I kind of use the ontologies and taxonomies um, as opposed to just hierarchical aspects. Taxonomies themselves need to be managed. Um, in the absence of them being managed, they get defined and they get lost as an artifact and they don't really get embedded anywhere. If you define a taxonomy and, on, and ontologies, you should embed those into your culture, your recruiting, your training and everything else. And the mechanism should reinforce it. I, I would consider the taxonomies to be a product, which means a product has customers. <laughs> so you might have owners of the product and the people will be able to manage it. But you have a community and feedback mechanisms around it to evolve it. Nothing's perfect and everything changes all the time. I would define taxonomies and ontologies as products with customers and treat them as such with open feedback mechanisms and, and loops and cultures so people can contribute. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. Uh, on this podcast, we meet pioneers, thinkers, and doers, and we talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world. Uh, today, I'm joined by my regular co-host, uh, my colleague at Boundless, Shruti Prakash, who is joining from Indonesia. Ciao, Shruti. Hi, hi. As you know, uh, on this podcast, we often discuss product centricity, uh, product-centric operating models, and today we are joined by an authority in this space, uh, Craig Strong. Craig is a product operating model specialist. Uh, he leads uh, a practice, a global practice uh, on these and other topics at, at AWS, Amazon Web Services. Craig spent uh, many of the last few years helping organizations transform, modernize, and, and adopt these kind of customer-centric and product-centric models. Craig is also co-author of a book called The Lean Product Life Cycle, a book and methodology, an award-winning framework for, for corporate innovation and innovation culture. And the portfolio of customers that uh, Craig has been working with includes lots of uh, very interesting companies, Fortune 500, like Sky or, or Now TV, Person, uh, Inside Software, and, and uh, Hairgraves uh, Lansdown. Hello, Craig. Nice to have you. Hi, thanks for inviting me to join. Instead of just telling uh, people what, what you are up to, Craig, maybe it's a good idea to ask you to tell us more about uh, uh, your uh, professional evolution. And especially, you know, I'm, I'm interested in understanding why you ended up in being so focused on product centricity, uh, which is a, a so hot uh, topic today. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks for that introduction. So um, it's an interesting, I guess, answer to your question. Uh, I don't think I ended up where I am by design. <laughs> I think it was an insatiable uh, curiosity and, and maybe a determination of why and continuous improvement. Um, so some background, I actually started my career as a software engineer. Um, as I started sort of going up the ranks through software engineer managing teams, I started noticing we were building a lot of features that never get used. Then I um, transferred more into agile to get closer to the customer and sort of build in increments and learn by um, iterating with customer feedback. And that actually then helped me bridge into product. So then I was looking for repeatability and, and then how do I actually better understand customer segments, market segments, and repeatability. I basically started realizing that when you go into larger companies, or any company to that matter, the product managers and engineers don't build products alone. <laughs> you basically have everyone and every function essentially is building products in the organization. Everyone has a role to play. 
So to actually then develop and scale products, um, you need to look at the business as a whole and the organization and culture and those things. And that's where I determine in some extent what the product operator model is. It's everyone working together to deliver a repeatable value to customers. And that touches on things like innovation as well, because um, you need innovation, you know, uh, uh, presumes that ideas come from everywhere and you have a systematic way to bring those ideas um, to customers and, and, and learn and develop those things. I ended up in that space through starting out in software engineering and then sort of migrating into wider organizational leadership roles. Um, I ended up, uh, my time at Pearson, I ended up as a VP of product lifecycle management, which was really interesting, looking at products at every stage of the lifecycle and then funding models and worked with CFOs and so forth to understand, well, how do we take a venture capitalist approach in enterprises as opposed to a budgeting model for different products at different stages and those things. Yeah, and that led me to eventually join AWS. Um, all our customers are obviously cloud-driven um, and cloud-enabled at very uh, different stages of their adoption. But when you look at um, what customers are trying to do with cloud, they're ultimately trying to drive top-line or, or bot bot top revenue or bottom-line efficiency. And that brings in, well, it's not just technology, but you have to think about how everyone works together to deliver value. Um, and that's, again, where the product operating model comes in to maximize the value of technology in those contexts. You managed to to touch on so many interesting points just on the opening question. So, for example, you said product centricity as a way to think about the customer, right? That's a very important point because sometimes large organizations end up more focused on their processes than the customer itself. So product centricity helps keep everybody accountable to the customer because your know, product and customers are the two topics, two, two ideas that are very much connected. Then uh, another thing that you mentioned that I think was very interesting, you know, finance, the role of budgeting. And you said uh, kind of transitioning into a VC operating model. So, so basically investing into ideas instead of budgeting, which is, I think, another fantastic point to bring up. And it very much resonates with uh, the work we are doing with uh, Rendan Hoy and uh, uh, the TRIO model that, uh, uh, you know, kind of push the organization to think about a venture building uh, uh, organization. Having said that, uh, maybe another another kind of quick question that I would like to ask you is to help us frame a bit uh, the conversation we are having today. And uh, maybe what I would like to ask you is to give us an overview of the key uh, tenets or uh, the key uh, concepts that exist in a product-centric organization. And uh, what are the key artifacts, for example? No, I'm thinking of you know portfolios, taxonomies, particular elements of the culture or structure or organizational processes. Let's try to give an overview, and from this overview, then we can peek into some of the uh, deepest, uh, or, or you know, go more vertical into some directions. So you touched on a good point. So I use the word or the phrase "product operator model" a lot, and that, what I find <laughs> when I speak to customers, there's certain phrases: product operator model, innovation, transformation, and they mean different things to different people. So I like to usually define those things. So when I talk about product, uh, a product for me is any entity which can create repeatable value to a customer uh, or customer segment, I should say. But what I, when I say a product operator model, I'd like to just call out a key value point underpinning that is customer centricity. 
because one of the things I'm challenged with sometimes is I go into organizations, they might have a very sales-centric way of working, um, which is sales-led, which doesn't necessarily lend itself well for efficiency a lot of the time, for repeatability, because it can be very short-term thinking driven by incentives. Similarly, if um, when I see product, um, I find it challenging because I think if, if you look at product management for the last 10 years, it implies customer centricity. But a lot of people still see customer versus product centricity. And I, I don't call that distinction. I think modern product companies are customer centric. So the value or the tenant of customer centricity is through the entire organization. What that means is you actually know who the customers are. You work very closely with the customers and you use data and feedback from customers to make objective decisions strategically and tactically. So if we were going to look at sort of some of the tenants, I suppose, underpinning that, I would say, um, or product operator model, obviously customer centricity, as I've just mentioned there. But the other thing would be you've got a connected organization. So I, I, I work with customers to try to define when you've got the executive group you might have a business unit and you might have a product line and then you've got the program level and then you've got the product teams. Well, all of those things are connected through aggregation and taxonomies and portfolios, which I'll come to in a moment. And you've also got you know, the notion of if you've got customer-centric metrics and a customer-centric culture, you move away from projects. Um, projects still exist in a product world. I'm not saying they don't exist, but at the same time, they're in the context of outcomes um, and that you don't deliver projects because I believe a product is born when a project's delivered <laughs> and that's not conducive of feedback loops. So you need a connected organization, you have the cultural aspects and you need the mechanisms to be able to actually make all that work. Key mechanisms for me um, are a portfolio, a portfolio at, at those levels, you have an executive company view of a portfolio. You have business unit level portfolios and you have product um, lines um, and potentially programs as well of, of a portfolio. But you also then need um, a key point is a life cycle context. So going back to what we explored earlier about funding and everything else, a life cycle for me is really important because you're able to contextualize the right questions at the right time. And if you get that wrong, you could dismiss really good ideas too early or discover you're developing the wrong things too late. So if you cross-section a portfolio with a life cycle, so you know where your products are or ideas are at different stages, you can introduce incremental governance um, in a way where you can maximize learning and uh, develop a culture of, 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 of a learn fast and, and quick decision making. At the same time, what's also important there is the mechanisms of portfolio taxonomy and the life cycle provides you with objective criteria of what's perform underperforming, not just performing well. And to free up capacity to innovate, that should give you the ability to decide to say no quite often and to actually close things down or remove duplication from your portfolio. And that allows companies to potentially innovate without increase in spend because you're recycling resources and recycling investment. You said these are the tenets. You have to have a portfolio. A portfolio can be made of product lines. And so the idea of a portfolio, just to make it clear for our listeners, is to a way to look at the system of the products that you de de develop in, in your organization. So in a way that you are aware of the complexity. 
And there are several approaches to this, but essentially, as Craig said, you know, we're talking about understanding product lines and products and, and sub-products and things like that. Then uh, you mentioned, Craig, that executive, there, there needs to be an executive view, so a strategic view of this portfolio. Then you mentioned two more things. One thing is uh, taxonomy, and this is something we're going to dive deeper, I think, because at the moment is one of the bigger questions that we have on our, on our table. And uh, um, then you mentioned life cycle. And I think one thing I wanted to underline for our listeners, you, you said you need to have an incremental governance. So may I ask you to clarify a little bit, but what I perceive is that maybe initial projects, so co- products that are still in exploration phase may need uh, lighter governance than projects that are more mature in the in the pipeline. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Let me give you some examples around this, I suppose, where when I go into enterprises, more often or not, to get an idea off the table, you need to write a business plan <laughs> or something of that equivalent. And that can be quite a substantial undertaking. The business plan you know, requires investment and you need to do things like financial forecasting and everything else. Now, if you're doing true innovation, you don't really know the revenue <laughs> and anything you project on the revenue is a wild guess. But as soon as you put it in a plan, those wild guesses become, they, they get perceived as um, assertions, not assumptions. So if you put it in the context um, of this is an idea, we're exploring this idea, um, and you focus upon customer engagement, you focus upon the customer problem, you can learn about what the best business model is through that process as opposed to predefine it in the business plan. So you might actually take months of customer discovery and customer engagement to understand if you're really solving the problem before you even think about revenue, because that would be too early. Now, that's not to say you don't do any research at all, because you wouldn't want to go into a space where there isn't a potential return investment, because there's obviously a cost to that exploration. But you can do market research to see if what's the, the category, how much people are spending in this, how, what is the customer segmentation and market um, look like. So there's some indication that there is a potential return investment. You just don't know the, the specifics at that time. So as you learn through the, and ideas move through the different levels as, um, of a life cycle, you can start introducing more information contextually into the next stage. And that also allows you to stop things. So if, if, you're, if you're spending a couple of months exploring an issue with a small team and actually you don't meet the success criteria, you're not solving the customer need, fine, then that's great. You've, you've, you've spent less time doing all that planning and you can move on to the next idea. The other thing, just to point out though, um, which I think is a real constraint that not too many people talk about enough is, is the notion of how alienating traditional governance can be for innovation and ideation. So what I mean by that is most companies I work with are enterprises these days, and they are usually globally distributed or have quite a substantial breadth of employees across different regions. And innovation shouldn't be made exclusive to a group of innovators or those people who are politically connected to the budget holders, because that will constrain the ideas substantially. So having a life cycle, which is very simple, so anyone with an idea and those closest to the customer can actually capture their idea in a very simplistic way and, and actually get that in the portfolio and with support, without having to be trained in an MBA or business plans, <laughs> you're more likely to get an increased quality and an increased number of ideas to actually explore and, and exploit for your, your future uh, business health. 
what is a product taxonomy? No, because maybe a lot of people understand uh, what a life cycle is, what a portfolio is, or portfolio many many products, life cycle, the steps, you know, from exploration into more 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 mature. But what, what really is a product taxonomy? Yeah, good question. <laughs> so it's quite funny actually. When I talk about um, taxonomies and life cycles, usually people are not engaged until they realize what they are and how powerful they can be. So for me, a, a, a product taxonomy is a simplistic categorization and hierarchy of how things relate to each other. Um, so that means you would have, you know, as we've said, a customer-facing product, and you might classify that as such, or customer-facing platform. And within that, you might have many platforms and internal products, which all make up part of that. And you might have services and everything else, which are all part of that. So it's the hierarchical relationship between those things. And it's really important to make that classification because when you look at a life cycle or portfolio, you look at it from a lens or a layer from the layer of the taxonomy. And if when you've got a taxonomy in place, let's just say you've got an internal service which serves many products, you're able to look at the attribution and inheritance and the total cost of ownership with much more clarity. And you're also able to call out dependency because if you've if you've got this relationship between which services relate to which products and platforms you can actually understand, like I said, what the cost is, what the dependency is, what the release cycles are, what the investment is, where the risk is, and what the operational structure looks like. The other thing around it is, is I think it actually drives behavior. Um, so it's, it's, as I said, it's essential for portfolio management because you look at the level. But let me give you an example. So I was working with a retailer recently in the UK, and I was looking over their taxonomy for and their portfolio, should I say, over the last 12 months. And they had a taxonomy in place. But when you looked at the portfolio, there was an increase in platforms. So they had, they had quite a lot of waste, observable waste, and not really much clarity on if you ask the question, what does this do and what problem does it solve? It wasn't really clear um, who the customers were. And there was a spike in the number of platforms over the last 12 months um, for some reason. And when we investigated that a little bit further, <laughs> the reason being is, is because by classifying something as a platform, you could bypass a lot of the governance. <laughs> so whereas a product would go through the life cycle and you'd say, who's the customer and what, what this thing, a platform in this company was an internal facing product and you could get away with defining a lot less on those things. So it, it created a problem for them because products were then being defined as platforms to get through probably most of them were passion projects and things like that which made it very difficult to close down and then diluted the portfolio into a meaningful artifact you mentioned two things you mentioned products and platforms which is a common and recurring uh, element of taxonomy so for example we can recognize them also in many devops frameworks emerging so for example if uh, people listening are familiar to team topologies, you know, there is this idea of platform teams and stream-aligned teams. So we, we kind of see this resonance. But the question I have is more like, if you want to double-click into what else do you normally have in taxonomy or what are the patterns that you see more, more often? You know, I mean, concepts such as modules, sub-products, bundles, uh, anything else that you, is worth mentioning before we move into deeper deeper considerations? So actually, one of the, when I was at Pearson a few years back, one of the, we were actually implementing the product lifecycle, um, and we realized pretty quickly you couldn't really implement the product lifecycle or portfolio without defining the taxonomy. 
and it was very difficult because Pearson at the time went through a lot of M&A and we had, you know, it was things like the Financial Times was part of their portfolio, which is very different to some of their educational businesses. There was also the complexity, as you said, of bundles and things like that. So what we ended up doing is defining the SKU, the single sellable unit, <laughs> whether it's a bundle or a separate product as the lowest common denominator for a customer facing product. And what we were able to do with that then, if you're able to sort of say, well, this is a book, for instance, and that's a, that's a product. This is a, a course, which is a um, bundle of different things. This is a platform which sells many products. Um, all of those are SKUs, they're sellable items. And then you have bundles and you're able to sort of see the inheritance that way of you can sell this independently or it's part of a bundle and that bundle can be part of a, a, a platform that way. And then you can create those relationships to know the total distribution um, um, in, in that form as well. I think one of the points that, you know, sort of stood out to me as well was the fact that inherently organizations are complex and incre increasingly so, right, with time. So a lot of the inputs that you had said before this as well in terms of its complexity, the need for governance and so on. How does that hold true when organizations are extremely dynamic, growing in size? And how do you ensure that your systems of operation are kept up to date and constantly so? How do you go about that? It's an interesting question. So organizations are complex and you don't need to be a big organization to be complex. <laughs> um, what, what I think, though, when I look at, you know, I, I work for AWS, and which is obviously part of Amazon, which is a, not a small organization by any means. And one of the things which works well for us to scale is we, we have a bunch of leadership principles and tenets which drive behavior. And that gives us flexibility because you know one of our number one is customer obsession so when we're having debates you know we will default to is it the right thing to do for the customer and that will drive some of the behavior the important thing is we we have common mechanisms and it's not just amazon this is you know large organizations i've seen perform well they have cultural tenets which drive behavior um, and call, call each other to account you have common mechanisms. So there are ways to interface. If you've got an idea, this is how you submit it. Um, if you've got a, this is a taxonomy and this is how things are related to each other. Um, if, if you are at this stage of the product, this is how you manage it and this is what the team looks like. Or um, in our case, we have the notion of two pizza teams, which are small autonomous teams, which have clear ownership of things. So those things hold true. What I think doesn't work and what can be a massive inhibitor is prescription of defined frameworks. <laughs> because if you try to prescribe a, a way of working in a too detailed fashion across a range of an organization which, which has complexity, you won't, account, you won't cater for the difference and cater for emergence. And I think emergence and difference are absolutely key ingredients for innovation and performance and continuous improvement to, to prevail. So it's balancing using heuristics, using tenants, using mechanisms to, to, to reinforce those the cultural tenants, but not over-prescribing um, the ways of working and allowing for difference. Um, and how you do that is, you know, you can have commonality through interfaces but you can have autonomy within the teams or products behind those interfaces. In the scalability element, what is the role of P&L, uh, profit and loss, and you know, in general, wrapping finance around products 
and teams, uh, and also of other elements that are more about circulation of, of information, like you know, visual documents or uh, communities of practice, like rituals. Staying in the in original question from Shruti on how do you scale these, how do you ensure that this uh, approach stays uh, stable as your organization changes, you have new people come in, you know, people go out and so on. What is the role of finance, PL, and documentation, community of practice, processes, uh, and, and, and so on? Yeah, so let's, let's dive into that. So I think there's a cultural aspect. How do you maintain the culture and things, um, which higher, slow, fire fast <laughs> is a good way to protect the culture, but that's not always possible if you're growing fast and all of those things. Um, I prefer to sort of make it sh- more, focus more on drive higher the right people, hire based on um, principles and culture and skills are trainable. So hiring the right people and taking them on the journey and giving them the support that's needed is absolutely essential. Support can come in the form of formal training, but also communities of practice, mentorship and coaching and all of those things which have their have their place. The PL is interesting because it depends what level you're asking the question at, I suppose. Everything we do is to drive customer value um, and inherit from customer value. There is a business model. So if you take money as a byproduct of value, um, then you can focus on the customer and you can work out a business model that way. Now, it has to be sustainable, you know, you could because you can have a... Uh, inoperable business model, <laughs> but it's a business model. Um, so the PL, you know, you have to have minimal thresholds and things like that of what need to be in the interest of the strategic view of the company, and they inform the PL informed strategy. But I think there's the context aspect of the PL as well. So not put in financial projections too early, as we mentioned in the life cycle. But actually, then you know, having those support of when it comes in, what does it look like, and having the capability to inform and experiment with business models is, is absolutely key. A challenge I see sometimes, is particularly if finance is abstracted from product, you get product not necessarily from a finance background, or many product managers haven't worked closely or with finance, um, but they then define the customer behaviors and everything else. And they might not be able to sort of see the financial opportunities that could be there because there's an abstraction to finance and vice versa. You know, finance are prescribing things to product or the part of the business model, but they're a few layers removed from the customer. So bringing those things together, I think, um, is absolutely key. And that's where what governance for me does. um, Governance is not a controlling mechanism. It's an enabler to bring people together to have those meaningful conversations, to drive meaningful decisions. So I think the P&L shouldn't be a reactive aspect. It should be a very inclusive aspect, very close to product and the customer. And that's um, an evolutionary relationship through the, the, the product through its life cycle um, and and it should also be aspects of that where you know mature products can look for adjacency and, and drive more growth in different areas as well what are other uh, indicators that you can use as alternative to pnl for example in the early stage of a development of a new product unit yeah so it, it depends on your product i suppose but you want to look at things like um, customer retention you want to look at activation referrals 
you want to look at how you're solving the problem for the customer. I actually recently spoke to a VC on this, um, the startup looking to get investment. And um, it was quite interesting. The advice was, don't come to us basically pitching that you want funding. Come to us and show us that you've got at least 10 customers using your product on a regular basis and you're solving that problem for them. And then we'll talk about you know financing. So it was very much, a, we'll work out the business model after, but first thing we want to show you is, um, you will show us is that you're you've actually solving the customer problem they're frequently using the product over other alternatives um, and they're highly engaged so it's it's basically demonstrating you can solve the customer problem well enough they choose your product over other alternatives hey you are listening to this episode on an audio only version get the best of the experience by watching these and other episodes in video on youtube Go to YouTube and search for Boundaryless Conversations, or just take your browser and write blss.io slash bcpy, all capital letters, and you get there. On YouTube, you'll be able to subscribe to our channel and get notifications when new episodes are released. I think some of the words that you mentioned, I wanted to highlight and maybe, you know, question you on that as well, that... One was that people, let's say, experiment with business models, right, essentially. And the fact that increasingly so we need to be maybe inclusive and not reactive in our approach and so on. Essentially, all of this is done by people on ground and therefore there is ought to be some amount of bias in this process. And maybe like you said, like hiring the right kind of folks and so on is something that is a step that Amazon maybe takes towards this. But do you have any other recommendations on how this process can be made objective, essentially, and removing any form of bias from the process? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So so it goes back to the life cycle and portfolio somewhat. So just to clarify as well, so in my role in Amazon, I help customers adopt some of the mechanisms we've just talked about, but are not, not Amazonian mechanisms, although they might be referenced as um, models. But um I believe, you know, Spotify have the Spotify model. And if you're not Spotify, find your own model. <laughs> um, Amazon have their model. Um, if you're not Amazon, find your own model. Amazon didn't use someone else's model. Um, you can still be inspired by and take ideas from anywhere. Um, so and I, so don't. Um, that doesn't mean don't use it, but, um, you know, try to evolve it and contextualize it to your business. I think... Um, to objectify the governance, one of the things which is key, goes back to the product lifecycle and the portfolio again, is to define sort of key questions you need to ask at certain stages. So when I, when I, the, the product lifecycle book I mentioned was, was an example of that where, you know, when you're in the explore stage, which is after you've submitted an idea, you basically want to focus upon the customer problem most of all. So it's um, what problem are we solving before you even build anything? And to support that, what's been successful for me in the past is actually setting up the notion of product councils. Um, so these, you know, cr- these can be cross-functional groups where you have someone from finance, you might have someone, you have someone from product, you have someone from technology and architecture, who come together on a bi-weekly or monthly basis to review the health of the portfolio. And then you can have hypothesis-driven design. So the, one of the things you need to get over is um, reactive governance or reactive as Reactive attribution. <laughs> so we're building a product. Um, we're going to drive growth by X percent, and then you hit like eight percent, and then you say that's successful. 
But what I think for objectivity, you need to say, right, in the next quarter, we're planning to move the needle of Y by 10%. And you should be held account to that 10%. Um, now, it's not the end of the world if you don't hit it, but you should reason to why. It could be the new competitor product come out. It could be you didn't do this. It could be you assumed something else, but you learned something else. So having a forecast hypothesis of what you're trying to do and how you think it will result in something, and then having the portfolio group come together to review what actually happened and look at the narrative underneath that of the why um, helps inform you look at the metrics, but it also gives you context of, of, of the why to be able to make it, make a decision. And why that's also important is because you will be able to contextualize decisions, but make better quality decisions because you're able to sort of observe the, the detail of the outcome in a, in a more lateral way, I suppose. Um, and that exploration can yield to improved innovation because you could also see opportunities which are not in your plans, which, you, which are learnings you might pivot towards, um, which could fundamentally be very different to what you started with but are very important and, and, and great opportunities to explore. We are used to think about innovation as something that is extremely inorganic and comes out of uh, you know, radical ideas and entrepreneurship. So what is the amount of uh, operationalization that we can achieve on something like product innovation? Uh, and uh, as a side note to this question, how do you avoid essentially this process to become uh, just innovation theater? And uh, uh, more specifically, what is the role in your experience of skinning the game in this process? You know, at Boundaries, we are very much uh, a big proponents of uh, an approach that uh, involves PNL from the very early stage, if not from the start. And uh, we talk a lot about skinning the game through maybe equity, shared equity, revenue, access to part percentage of the profits. So how do you, on one side, empower teams to, be, to, to avoid theater and also on the layer of those that coordinate and, and decide, how do you improve their skin in the game in, in this process? Yeah, good good questions there. So the first thing, innovation theater, <laughs> um, there's a lot of opinions on this, but I'll share in mind, a couple of things I think are important there is that any innovation you do has to be connected to a strategy. It might be an innovation thesis or a strategic objective, but doing ideating without a connection to a strategy or an objective becomes, you know, it, or runs the risk of becoming um, pure exploration, you know, pure play really which is not always a bad thing but it, it doesn't really result in positive results as i see it um i, I worked with the team a few years back um there's a whole division and they would just experiment with google glass and all of those things and i, I can honestly say out of probably 100 ideas they done maybe one went to market and it was by accident not by design if you're able to connect any effort um to the strategy and link it in the portfolio, as you mentioned. Bring the PNL in. What is it we're exploring? Why and how? You know, where does or how does this connect to the the initiatives of the business? Then you're able to get the right support and the right context in, involved with it. The other thing is, um, I think there's yes, there there are. Um, in, if you look at personalities, there are people who are really uncomfortable with the unknown, and there are people who are not comfortable with unknown, and they, but they're much more comfortable in processes. And 
So that means in the there's people who are really good at the left side of the life cycle, the ideating, who are not so good at the right and vice versa. So understanding who who plays where and what to their skill set is really important. Um, so there's a cultural aspect of, of recognizing that as well. Um, but I also would say that innovation is not exclusive to people with innovation in their title. Um, you know, I've, I think, like I said, anyone, ideas are cheap and anyone and everyone can have ideas. Um, but at the same time, if you limit that to people with innovation in the title, you're probably taking 99% of the your opportunities away from potential opportunities. So removing the exclusivity and the elevation of, you know, reputation of I'm an innovator, I think it's important um, to be able to commoditize that a bit more and allow people to lean in and, and get their ideas heard. And this also, this also stems into the diversity and inclusion and all of those aspects as well. So it's not an exclusive group of people, but it's actually ideas from everywhere. So that's important, I think, in terms of the removing the innovation aspect. How do you ensure that uh, there is a skin in the game for everybody involved and uh, both the, the entrepreneurs, the product entrepreneurs and the leaders that uh, kind of uh, allocate capital into this? Yeah. So I think there's there's a personal there's a personal aspect to this as well. So um if you're, you know, there's a lot of great ideas which started in large enterprises that never got pitched to the enterprises because they were on salaries and they get no reward for it. I think there is definitely a place for if large enterprises. I think if you speak to most people in roles, particularly around product and technology, they've probably got some side initiatives or big ideas that they're not capitalized or not realized, but they're thinking about them all the time. But there's an aversion to pitch it because it's not really what they're doing in their day job. There's not really a mechanism to support it and everything else. So if if there was a um, a way to incentivize people to get skin in the game, as in a reward system, so if they pitch something, um, and I'm, I don't mean like a prize system, I'm on about equity in it, um, it would incentivize people to go over and above their day job and connect to it and bring their ideas forward in the organization they're in. Then to be able to do that, you'd need the governance to recognize it. So, you know, could people be seconded? Could they be rewarded and given some time to explore those ideas with a smaller budget or a small team? And um, there would be a culture to, to allow that to happen. Part of that team as well is to coach people through it. So you get people, finance and everything else would get involved early. They would work with them as a partner and, and kind of try to, you know, you'd have a, a team to basically do that. Um, but I think this, there's, a, there's an aspect of skin in the game to incentivize people to pitch ideas in an organization. And there's also the psychology of ideas are cheap. So unless you've got skin in the game, <laughs> there's um, a barrier to be able to materialize ideas because, you know, people will just be throwing things over the fences. From my point of view, even when we, you know, my background as a consultant, um, an advisor, should I say, back at back when I was in professional services, if I would advise or propose anything, I would recommend that I would also be accountable for delivering it <laughs> because, uh, you know, then you actually live live your recommendation, you're, you're held to account for it. So I think there's skin in the game drives a responsibility um, which drives quality as well, which is important. 
I understand that let's say taxonomies in itself have to be hierarchical but how do you make the process of designing these to be more inclusive more flat and therefore maybe is there a good mix between achieving a top down versus bottom up development of design portfolios and taxonomies and so on yeah so I kind of use the ontologies and taxonomies um, as opposed to just hierarchical aspects. Taxonomies themselves need to be managed. Um, in the absence of them being managed, they kind of they get defined and they get lost as an artifact and they don't really get embedded anywhere. If you define a taxonomy and, on, and, and ontologies, then you can basically, you should embed those into your culture, your recruiting, your training and everything else. And the mechanism should reinforce it. And, the, you know, those taxonomies, ontologies are versioned, so they get embedded in all, all of those things. The other thing is, is like anything, really, I, I would consider that, uh, which I do, the taxonomies to be a product which means a product has customers. <laughs> so you might have owners of the product and the people will be able to manage it, but you have a community and feedback mechanisms around it to evolve it. Um, nothing's perfect and everything changes all the time. So even if it's good today, it might not be good tomorrow. I would define taxonomies and ontologies as products with customers and treat them as such with open feedback mechanisms and, and loops and cultures so people can contribute. And the other advantage of that, of course, is um, you can build up examples and, and build up the depth of knowledge because you have the collective intelligence of the many um, that way. This is a really critical point of the conversation when you said uh, taxonomies and ontologies have to be. Let's recall a little bit why we in complex portfolios want to have taxonomies and ontologies like, you know, and ontologies means essentially, you know, teams sharing a certain description of the domain they are dealing with. Let's say, for example, you have an agricultural uh, company. You, you, you may want teams to agree on what is a, a farmer, what is a, I don't know, a, a harvest, what is a, 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 a product, produce, what is transport, and so on. So, so that the teams can develop different pieces of the product uh, together, and then these pieces can more easily connect. Um, and I think the fact that you said uh, uh, taxonomies and ontologies need to be seen as products, this is fantastic from my point of view, because I remember having a conversation on this very podcast with Alberto Brandolini, one of the you know, most uh, important experts on domain-driven design, and he said, agreeing has a cost. So we should be uh, avoiding it if not uh, strictly needed. Okay, so... There is this kind of uh, um, continuous dynamic between imposing a taxonomy and a ontology on your product portfolio from the top and looking into what's emerging. Uh, and, and also to kind of add some complexity, we can talk about uh, the role of ecosystems. So again, I, I want to quote another conversation I had on this podcast with uh, Scott Brinker from HubSpot, where he's, he talked uh, talk to us about how HubSpot is... Uh, uh, product uh, scope, let's say, is divided in, into apps, and then you have approach to product development that uh, it doesn't really push the whole portfolio to the customer, but rather makes a portfolio of products that are easy to, to connect with. So either as a plugin, as a, an app, or maybe you can just use the same data format. And, and so, so what is your experience as working with customers in terms of uh, how do you build 
uh, a taxonomy that is and, and an ontology that uh, is convenient enough to be used. And also, if you can double click a little bit into uh, building open-ended products, which uh, also have a possibility for external parties to uh, plug into. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack in, <laughs> in there. Um, so a good place to start for me is, is basically the portfolio. So when you're looking at products across a portfolio, you need to have an objectivity to be able to see like for like, how do things compare of the similar type? Um, and that's really important because unless you've got that definition you can't really manage a portfolio. You need to be able to sort of see objectively what, what those things and how they compare. And then you want to drill down. You want to drill down into those things and you want to see those relationships, as we mentioned. So it's absolutely critical um, to, to basically define that. And that's usually a good place to start. You know, what do we want to see in our portfolio? And let's define that one level. And then you start drilling down, well, what products or platforms or services or modules might actually plug into that? And what's the relationship? How do they interface um, in that in that way? You might not want to manage modules at a portfolio level. But the other thing why that's really important, um, particularly in enterprises, um, if we're talking about innovation, but one of the, the the biggest consumer for me is waste <laughs> in terms of innovation potential. It's not like a lack of revenue. It's it's actually waste. Waste is in duplication and or underperformance. And I've gone into many companies and they've gone through lots of M&A. I've seen 50 ERPs in, in, internally for companies. So the cost of getting information out is so high and they're so abstracted, you can't really make decisions. So you start seeing the secondary symptoms of those in those causes as soon as you start putting a taxonomy in. The other thing there is, if you want to externalize that, I think there's a there's a, there's a distinction between an external and an internal because you, I would I would put a taxonomy into the starting at the, what's the customer facing product internally you would have that as the PL, the group of the PL. so the PL might be a product line or it might be a business unit um, but then there you'd have a, maybe a product line or products um, or and the products could be platforms or, or not depending on how you define that but you've got that inheritance and relationship when you go to external points of view um, if you, like you mentioned HubSpot or so forth the whole point there is to actually create those interfaces and attributes and the structure for people to be able to operate. So if you have a platform and a platform can, you can pull in content, you can pull in modules, you can extend it with apps, you can pull in or develop APIs and everything else. Those are actually interfaces and those interfaces have rules. So it's really important that you define and version those things because there's an ecosystem related to those interfaces that needs to be managed when, the, when things change. And there's a relationship of inheritance which actually comes in from those different definitions as well. So the failure to actually manage that well is, is really expensive um, in terms of cognitive load on the users and the customers, which is something you want to avoid. When you get that really well done, then um, it becomes instinctive. Uh, an example, I don't know if this is <laughs> helping answer the question, but I believe that we're all inherent taxonomists. If you've got children, I've got a little, a young daughter. One of the first things you teach them is about animals, you know, because you're looking around and they've got a curiosity of the natural world. This is a bird. This is a dog. This is a cat. And then there's different types of birds. Well, that's a taxonomy. And if you think of to demonstrate how well we are 
how well or inherited we are of taxonomies. I challenge anyone to go to a supermarket. <laughs> so when you go to a supermarket, guess what? You go to the grocery section and everything's there with the groceries. You know, you go to the vegetables, you might go to the bread section, you might go to the dairy section, you might go to the frozen section. That's a taxonomy. And no one thinks about that as a customer, but you can go into every store with a rough consistency of every store set up that way and you can navigate to find the products you want very quickly and exit the store. So there's an inherent taxonomy in, in that. And that's the same when you talk about the, you know, digital products or other products. You want to make it so instinctive and so simple and so consistent that um, you're actually, you know, no one has to think too much about it and it becomes almost obvious. But at the same time, you want to optimize it like a product. You know, like if we use the supermarket example, they got flows through the store, which actually maximize, you know, the checkout experience and the buyer um, the total cost or the value per customer through the journey through the store through that taxonomy. So you want to think about that as well in terms of how simple you can make it for people to connect, how natural and intuitive inheritance is, and how well you can objectify the governance and make those comparisons so you can then monitor performance. I'm getting this strong signal from your side that uh, Everything you drive into uh, either a platform, sorry, a portfolio strategy or your API strategy, your extendability, product extensibility strategy needs to be convenient from the perspective of both the third party, the customer and so on. So I think that this is a very strong signal and something to, to chew up on and, and to think through. Uh, as designers in terms of, you know, sometimes we, all, we, we talk about those standards, we want to position our products as pivotal in the ecosystem, but the question is, is this convenient? So there needs to be a strong convenient in, in pushing a, a, some kind of taxonomy or structure or modularity or, perf- or you know, kind of language or whatever, because otherwise systems won't really agree on uh, something because if there is an implicit cost on agreeing on something. So is, if it, there is not implicitly, sorry, an explicit maybe benefit of doing it, uh, it's going to be very hard for, for both for teams internally or or, or customers to. to is, is this capturing what, what what you are trying to say? Yeah, absolutely, and that that's why I mentioned managing those things as products as well because it's about the value. Um, I think. It, it's essential whatever you introduce governance and taxonomy could be seen as, as governance but is, is what is it you're trying to solve and and how do you do that in a way which minimizes it and it could be you know a taxonomy it could be trying to solve you know clarity in the portfolio so you've got objectivity but it could also be so everyone knows where they are in the system and how they connect to other people in the system so they can see themselves within the system you need to make that as simple as and inherent um, and instinctive as possible because if you think of it this way, the absence of it creates a, increases complexity or even a state of chaos potentially. But once you have it, things can operate more um, in a fluid manner. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, Amazon's a large company and we have, you know, cultural tenants and we have mechanisms. And we don't have prescriptive frameworks in, in many ways because we use interfaces as small teams so we know quite well which team owns what and how the inter- how to interface with every team is very clear who who makes decisions is very clear because we have single single threaded leadership so it's very clear where you go if you've got an issue or if you if you need something who can who can help you and how you can interface with those things and i think when you're scaling 
that that's essential. Otherwise, you're going to be increasing cognitive load and complexity substantially. I think uh, this helps us also get a rounded opinion on how to approach building and implementing taxonomies, right? Is there maybe something we missed touching upon from our side that you'd like to probably highlight for our listeners? Or if not, you can also share maybe some uh, breadcrumbs or suggestions as we call it from our side for maybe books or podcasts that have inspired your journey as well. Yeah, Um I've enjoyed the conversation, so I hope um, <laughs> we've covered a lot of things, I think, um, well in, in what we've explored. I guess um, I would, what I would share is uh, one of the things I, I find, I draw my inspiration from, although I'm kind of in a product and technology world, um, is biomimicry. <laughs> so when I look at sort of teams, for instance, um, and the structure of teams, I, I read a lot of biology and biomimicry and um I draw inspiration maybe because it's abstract from uh, resources outside the field. So if you look at like a a, bio, a a cell, you know, a cell a cell is pretty consistent in size. And when you know, if you go through mitosis or mitosis, the cell splits and it creates another cell of the same size. And I liken that to how you create teams. You have a two, in Amazon, we have two pizza teams. When the team gets too big, we split the team into another thing. So they, they roughly stay the same size, and then there's common interfaces. So I like to draw um, a lot of inspiration from biology. Um, taxonomies, if this might be uh, <laughs> too much information, but I love actually going through the history of biological taxonomies, Carl Linnaeus and people like that, because it's quite interesting when you look at the natural world, how they look at taxonomies. And over time, as we've kind of got more advanced in DNA and things like that, how it's challenged some of the taxonomies and then how it's used. So that, I always find that quite important. And I'm not I'm not expecting everyone to share my passion on that. <laughs> um, but if, if you're interested in taxonomies, I, I would strongly suggest um, looking at the biological structures um, and biology as a, a prerequisite there. Um, the other things around, you know, there's, um, you know, I draw a great inspiration from, you know, product conferences and leadership conferences. I try to actually go to different sort of fields. One of the things I try to do is avoid going to the same types of conferences all the time. So I might go to financial conferences, HR conferences, not just technology conferences, because it gives me different perspectives. and I'm able to engage with different functions and empathize with the challenges they have. Um, and build bridges in, in different domain languages. Um, yeah, um, I can follow up with some links if that's of use as well to any, anyone on the readers, but that's where I draw my inspiration from. Thank you so much. Your, your link would be welcome. And um, this uh, also leads me to, to say that uh, our listeners will be able to check uh, uh, the show notes uh, on boundaries.io slash resources slash podcast, uh, where they will find your episode and the others that we have been running in the last uh, four years now um, so check the show notes and um, yeah I mean that, that was a great conversation and I think overall uh, we touched upon so many great topics 
I want to just double click in the last thing you said, you know, this uh, uh, bio, biomimicry perspective is really interesting, you know, and, and I started to think through uh, ideas like product species and symbiosis between products instead of bundles and ecosystem of products with maybe some leading species and the others. So it's really, really uh, very interesting also to, to see how you can uh, entertain both a pragmatic approach uh, like, you know, when you said think taxonomies and ontologies as products and on the other side, uh, keeping this complexity mindset in, in your world. So thank you so much for, for sharing both of these uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, energies in the conversation. So um, thank you so much, uh, uh, Shruti. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Simone. And thank you, Craig, for joining us today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Craig. It was great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. We enjoyed it. For our listeners, uh, until we speak again, uh, remember to think boundaryless. less.